Welcome to our Clothed with the Sun podcast, daily reading and meditation on the gospel of the day. I am James Thomas. Today is Thursday, April 6, 2023. It is the Feast of Holy Thursday. Our reading is from the gospel according to St. John. Before the feast of Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to pass from this world to the Father. He loved his own in the world, and he loved them to the end. The devil had already induced Judas, son of Simon the Iscariot, to hand him over. So during supper, fully aware that the Father had put everything into his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God, he rose from supper and took off his outer garments. He took a towel and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with the towel around his waist. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Master, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will understand later. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, Unless I wash you, you will have no inheritance with me. Simon Peter said to him, Master, then not only my feet, but my hands and head as well. Jesus said to him, Whoever has bathed has no need except to have his feet washed, for he is clean all over. So you are clean, but not all. For he knew who would betray him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and put his garments back on and reclined at table again, he said to them, Do you realize what I have done for you? You call me teacher and master, and rightly so, for indeed I am. If I therefore, the teacher and master, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you a model to follow, so that as I have done for you, you should also do. So happy Triduum, everyone. Happy Holy Thursday. On this particular occasion, there are so many things to preach about. It's really hard to know what to talk about because this is the feast day of the Eucharist. We commemorate the day that the Lord gave us his body to eat, his blood to drink at the Last Supper, beginning with the apostles. It is the day that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, the word barakah, remembrance, giving them a new liturgy and essentially ordaining his apostles to carry this liturgy out. And so it's the feast day of holy orders and the priesthood in particular. Uh, It is the day of Jesus's betrayal and his agony in the garden. So many things are happening here. Jesus gives us a perpetual memorial of his passion and his death that are going to take place on Good Friday. But the passion really does begin on Holy Thursday, especially with him going into the garden and choosing our salvation. Father, take this cup away from me, but not my will, but your will be done. He says yes to the Father. As we all have said no, Jesus says yes, bringing us our salvation. So there's so many things we can talk about, and even this gospel of washing of the feet. Of course, there's a lot of debate about this and who should get their feet washed and what the washing actually means. Some say it's just about charity. Uh, It's certainly about humility. But also in the Old Testament ordination ritual, 
uh, there is feet washing involved. So it has to do with ordination as well. Jesus is saying, yes, as my leaders, be charitable to one another, my leaders of my new church that I'm founding. But also he's saying, I'm ordaining you. I want you to now ordain others. Pass on what you've been given. And of course, there's more we could always say about Judas. There's more we can say about Peter. I love to just give it a basic uh, message here for Holy Thursday. Let's talk a little bit about the Eucharist and even without getting into tons of theology. See, I love to preach about the Eucharist and about the Mass. So you'll be hearing me talk about this over and over again if you follow this podcast, uh, how to pray the Mass, the meaning of the Mass, the development of the Mass over the ages, how we can get the most out of Holy Communion, etc., But I love to just talk about how Jesus, in giving us his body and his blood, he then indicates to us over the centuries, yes, it is I, I am here. Do not be afraid. I love you. I am with you. I'm here in the tabernacle. I'm here at Holy Mass. And it's not simply me. It is my sacrificed body and blood for you. It is my passion and death that has been made present for you so that you can benefit from it for until the end of time. It's not simply an isolated event that happened 2,000 years ago, but Jesus leaves us this perpetual memorial, which doesn't simply mean memory. It's barakah in Hebrew, which means taking an event of the past and making it present right here and now. It is a type of liturgy. It is, uh, well, it's the new Passover, and Jesus does it on the Feast of Passover. So over the centuries... As Jesus has left us his body and his blood, and the church develops and grows in its understanding of this, yet we have first century documents that show the church's dogma of the Eucharist, what it all means. I mean, it was already there in the first century. Of course, in the 12th century, 13th century, we're going to read Thomas Aquinas and see all that he wrote and the hymns that he wrote and and how he really defined all the nitty gritty, which later, a couple centuries later, the Council of Trent and its official decree on the Eucharist and on the Mass simply footnoted Thomas Aquinas for the vast majority of it. Uh, but yes, as we've developed our understanding of it, our Lord has given us so many miracles. Pro- probably the most famous of all the miracles is Lanciano, Italy, but it's the same story that's happened in so many places, and is still happening in our day and age, where a priest will say Mass. And we believe that in the consecration, the bread becomes the body of Christ. The substance of it changes, yet it still retains its accidents. In other words, its properties, physical properties, it still looks like bread. It still tastes like bread. It still feels like bread. If it could smell a certain way, it still smells like bread. Our perception of our senses still remains the same, yet we believe our faith teaches us it becomes the body of Christ for us to receive, but also for us to adore. Jesus says, I will be with you always, and we believe he means that not just spiritually, but physically until the end of time by giving us the Eucharist. Yet, with these Eucharistic miracles, what happened in various places at various times was that the accidents changed as well. So in Lanciano, Italy, the priest was saying Mass, and as he said the words of consecration over the host, the properties of the host changed. It became fleshy. Uh, I'll describe that a little bit more in a minute. When he said the words over the chalice, the wine in the chalice, not only do we believe it becomes his blood, of course, but the properties changed. 
he noticed a perceptible change. And this was Lanciano, Italy, but and you can go and you can see the miracle, but there's so many other places. This happened all over the world. And so scientists will study what exactly is that on the plat the patent there, the plate. What exactly is that that used to be a piece of bread that changed in its physical properties when the priest said the prayers? Well, they've discerned in their studies, and it's over the centuries, so the studies keep developing, they keep getting more and more advanced, that this is actually living human tissue. Think about it, living human tissue. It doesn't have eyes, nose, ears, mouth, right? But it's living tissue. The cells are replicating. It's living tissue and specifically it's heart tissue. And they could actually tell now that when this happens all over the world, all these different places, it's the same every time. It's a piece of heart tissue that is alive and it's of a man and he is under great duress. And so then they get a DNA sample of it. More recently, we can do that with greater accuracy And every time this happens in the different parts of the world, it's the same DNA. And it's the same blood type. And I don't know, there are so many other things that can be perceived about it. But these are called Eucharistic miracles. It's Jesus saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm right here. I've given you myself, my flesh to eat, my my very self for you to adore. It's Jesus on the cross, but it's all of Jesus too. It's Jesus reigning in heaven. It's Jesus as a baby in the crib. It's Jesus in the womb of Mary. It's all of Jesus. It's Jesus preaching all the things that he preached and curing and healing and and delivering all the times that he did that in the gospel. So we have these Eucharistic miracles, and in my own life, I've experienced many Eucharistic miracles as well. Just to throw out a couple quick little stories, um, I had a priest friend, or I have a priest friend, who used to uh, be stationed in a um, mental hospital. And he said if he ever doubted the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, it was all confirmed for him when he worked there. And if he ever doubted the presence of evil, that was all confirmed for him when he worked there. Because he said on certain days, he would bring communion to the Catholic patients. And, you know, when people are in a mental facility... Uh, sometimes they can be misdiagnosed. Sometimes there is a crossover between a spiritual ailment and a mental, emotional ailment, meaning perhaps a person's possessed, perhaps they're oppressed, perhaps they're cursed, there's different things. Sometimes it's just the evil, and yet someone is thrown into a mental hospital. Sometimes it's just psychological, and yet uh, people are asking for exorcisms. We, we see it all in the church. But this priest told me that, and he he liked to tell this story about how when he was stationed there, he would bring communion on certain days and he would put the consecrated hosts in his jacket pocket. No one could see them, but he would walk down the hall and certain peoples, the same people every time, they would react violently to him. They would pick up something sharp, a pencil, whatever, and try to stab him. They would scream at him, curse at him, chase after him. People had to be restrained. Certain people couldn't stand to be in the presence of the Eucharist, even though, perceptibly speaking, no one knew that the Eucharist was there. 
but he would remain calm, and he's a priest with a very good sense of humor, so I could imagine how he would react to some of these people while trying to stay alive the whole time. But he would go, he would give out communion to certain patients that he had you know, told them he was going to bring communion to. And then at the end of it, he would walk down the hall without any hosts left in his pocket. And those same people that were crazy attacking him and just out of control uh, would say, oh, hey, Father, how you doing? Nice to see you. And he would say, what do you mean? You tried to kill me earlier. Oh, I did? I don't remember. In other words, he didn't have the Eucharist in his pocket, and now they just treated him with kindness. He got to know them. He's a good guy, and and they were nice people generally, and he got along with everybody. But yes, when the Eucharist was present, people reacted to it. That's the point of the story. It strengthened his belief in the Eucharist. There's a man that I used to know who used to uh, be very involved in the church. In fact, he was a great promoter of Eucharistic adoration. And he told us a story of how one day and he was praying in one of the chapels that he helped to establish of perpetual adoration. And he had found a week or two before that that he had brain tumors and he was only going to live a certain while longer. And so he was in the chapel praying and he was agonizing over what was happening to him. And he was confused and struggling and he was praying about it and he was just saying lord lord why are you doing this to me why are you letting this happen to me after all i've done for you as if we could ever possibly match what the lord has done for us with the little things we do for him but still he was a good guy and he was doing good things and as he prayed and as he just kind of worked through it in his mind in the presence of the lord he said lord your will be done your will be done Lord, I love you so much, and if you want to bring me home, that's fine. Whatever whatever you want, Lord, your will be done. And as he continued to pray, he said he felt a great warmth go up and down his body, especially on his head where the tumors were. And then the next day, he had a doctor's appointment, and he went to see the doctor, and the main tumor at the center of his brain was gone. It was cured. There were still some other tumors, though, and so he was given, I think, about an extra year to live because the main tumor was no longer there. He eventually did die, but he was given a great miracle. He was able to tell everybody about the miracle, and uh, he continued. I mean, that was his, his work in his later years was just to promote the Blessed Sacrament. Great story. Another great story is one of my seminary professors years ago uh, was also a therapist And he had an office, and he had a little chapel outside the office, and he kept the Blessed Sacrament uh, in that little chapel. And when people would come in for a therapy session, he would say, I want you to wait in this room for a little bit. And sometimes he would have them wait 10, 15 minutes in the Adoration Chapel. And he said, I want you to think about and pray about what we're going to be talking about today. Well, as the years went by, he said he noticed something, and he was doing this on purpose, that people would say to him, you know, Father, I love coming to you for therapy and spiritual direction and all these things. And they said, even though your therapy is great, your direction is great, your counseling is great, they said our favorite time of the meeting with you is that time we spend in that little chapel before we go into our meeting with you. That's where we get the most peace. That's really where we get all our answers to life's problems and questions. And he said some of these people were not Catholic, some of these people were not Christian, but a lot of them converted when he explained to them exactly what it was that he was doing with them, having them sit in front of the true presence of our Lord, uh, you know, as they were working out their various issues. In my whole life, I mean, and I try to do this every day, spending time in adoration, 
where I might have stressful things I'm going through, the Lord calms me down. I can recall times in college and when I was studying, when I was really stressed out and I didn't understand the book I was reading, I would take it into the chapel with me and sit before the Lord, and suddenly my mind would have clarity. A friend of mine in school once described Eucharistic adoration as open-heart surgery. You just got to give Jesus your time, give him your presence, open up your heart to him, and he reaches in and he fixes everything. He fixes our emotions, he fixes our, our bad thoughts, our anxious thoughts, what have you. So that's profound, and it's true. The Lord is here for us. The Lord promised he wouldn't leave us. And uh, yeah, I mean, we believe Jesus is present in so many different ways. In Scripture, when two or more are gathered in his name, just in his creations in so many different ways, I mean, he's, he's there. He's, he fills the world. He, we would cease to exist if his finger was not on our creation. Our hearts would stop beating if he was not there. And yet there are different degrees of the Lord's presence. There are different degrees of being able to receive grace. So it's why the family is so important, the home, you know, our parents, our siblings, you know, I mean, so many different things we could talk about where we're supposed to find the Lord, where we should be looking for the Lord in the poor, in the sick. Pope John Paul used to speak about those suffering the most, uh, have a greater closeness to our Lord because they're united with him in his suffering. But yes, in the Eucharist, there is a special degree of presence of Jesus for us to be with and benefit from. I often like to use the image of when you're out in the sun. Whether you're trying to get a tan or not, you're going to get a tan. You might even get burnt. Maybe we can cover ourselves up with clothing or sunscreen, this or that. But to the degree we expose ourselves to the sun, to that degree we're, degree we're going to be affected by the sun. It's the same thing when we spend time in a chapel that has a tabernacle, a church, and even more so when there's adoration and Jesus is in the monstrance, we are receiving the rays of the sun. The sun is looking at us with great love. He is reaching out to us with his healing rays, just loving us, just filling us with every good thing and enabling us to receive uh, all the good things he wants to give us. And one other point to be made now as we go through these next couple of days, this holy triduum, as we follow Jesus to his death on the cross, as we accompany Our Lady with his body to the tomb and St. Joseph Cupertino, Cupertino, St. Joseph of Arimathea and all the others, St. John the Apostle. Uh, the Eucharist that we celebrate today is the fruit of the crucifixion. It is the fruit of the tree of life. Remember in the Garden of Eden, there was uh, the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but there was also the tree of life. And God sent angels with fiery swords to guard the tree of life, lest Adam and Eve eat of that tree and live forever. He didn't want them to live forever in their fallen state. But isn't that an amazing thing that's revealed later on in Genesis after the story of the fall, that there was a tree? We already knew there was a tree of life, but our Lord guards it because in this tree of life, there is a fruit that if they receive it, they will be able to live forever. So interesting. They could live forever. There's a tree with a fruit that gives eternal life. John chapter 6, Jesus says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have life within you. 
those who do not eat my flesh and do not drink my blood will not have life within them. In other words, supernatural life, sanctifying grace, will come to us and increase in us when we receive Jesus in Holy Communion. Jesus in Communion is the fruit of the tree of life. The tree of life is the cross, the new tree of life. There are gospel parallels in all the different gospel stories. Sometimes you see the same story in a different edition of the gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, may be written a different way. Well, when Jesus is in the garden, this is referring to the tree of life, by the way. I haven't changed the subject. When Jesus is in the garden and Simon Peter uh, pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, one of the servants, uh, Jesus says, put away your sword. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And then he heals the man with the ear. In another one of those parallels, right around the same time, Jesus just out of nowhere says, put away your sword. And it doesn't say he's talking to Peter. It doesn't say anything about cutting anybody's ear off. Well, the church fathers look at that particular passage and they say, no, in that particular one, He's not talking to Peter. He's talking to the angels with the fiery swords guarding the tree of life that he didn't want them to eat of and therefore live forever. See, now the tree of life is no longer guarded. The tree of life, though, had to go through a transition. It was no longer just freely given in the Garden of Eden in paradise when there was no sin. Now, because there is sin, a price had to be paid for us to receive of the tree of life. Jesus had to die for us. So at that time of the Last Supper, giving us the Eucharist and then going through his passion and death and dying on the cross, now we have access once again to the tree of life and its fruit, which is the Eucharist. Now we have that which God intended to give us at the beginning, that which will give us eternal life. We can eat of it and live forever. It's connected to the woman at the well. I mean, we know the living water is a reference to the Holy Spirit, but all these things go together. The life of God has given us through the sacraments. We receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the Eucharist. And this gives us eternal life so that we don't have to continue to drink like what he was saying to the woman at the well. I can give you living waters and you will never thirst again. He's referring to the gift of himself and his grace, the Holy Spirit, the Eucharist that we can receive And we can have what we need for all eternity. We can have his mercy, his love, his grace. Um, And now, because the tree of life has been uncovered, the Eucharist has been given this fruit, he established his church, he told them to go out and preach the gospel to all nations. Now the Eucharist, the fruit of the tree of life, is present everywhere around the world so that now Jesus isn't just feeding the 12 apostles anymore at the Last Supper He's able to feed everybody everywhere. Everyone is now able to receive the fruit of the tree of life, and everyone has access to the cross through the Eucharist. Through the cross, we are set free, our sins are taken away, and the Holy Mass and the Holy Eucharist are our entrance into that cross. I hope everyone has a blessed Triduum. I will talk to you again tomorrow as we discuss the most important, most exciting things we could ever possibly discuss which Jesus did for us, for our salvation. God bless.